This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. 54 million U.S. adults age 50 and older are affected by osteoporosis and low bone mass. That's according to the National Osteoporosis Foundation. And the number is projected to increase to 64 million by 2020 and 71 million by 2030. Here with more on this growing problem is Dr. Jennifer Kelly. She's Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Endocrinology at Upstate Medical University and the Clinical Director of the Bone Density Unit at Upstate's Joslin Diabetes Center. Welcome, Dr. Kelly. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Linda. So tell us what we mean when we say osteoporosis and how is it different than osteopenia? So both osteoporosis and osteopenia are clinical diagnoses. They're made mostly with a bone density machine. So a bone density test gives numbers called T-scores, and depending upon where the person lies with their numbers, then we give the diagnosis. So a normal T-score is better than minus 1, like closer to 0. If it falls between minus 1 to minus 2.5, then that's considered osteopenia, and that's quite a big range. But then once it reaches minus 2.5 or less, that's considered osteoporosis, and that's when the risk for fracture increases. So but what is what are we actually talking about in terms of osteoporosis is this something is going wrong with your bones so is it a thinning of the bones a lack of strength a loss of strength yes it's a combination of all of those things so the bones I think most people think they're just kind of sitting there but they're actually very fluid and building and breaking down all the time so when there's bone loss there's more breakdown than building and that weakens the bone and puts people at risk for fracture So how do we know that we have it? I mean, are there symptoms that we can point to? Or how does someone have any clue that they might have osteoporosis? Oh, and by the way, osteopenia, as you mentioned, is a kind of a lesser form. It's not true full-blown osteoporosis. Right, that's right. I mean, people with osteopenia can still break bones, and that's the problem. We don't have a magic ball to know who will break a bone or not. But the problem is once someone's T-score is lower and they fall into the range of osteoporosis, then they're more likely to break a bone. So now in terms of the... the, the um, how you know the symptoms. Oh, and how you know. So the problem is it, people don't know unless they have a bone density or they break something. That's the problem. It's one of these um, disorders that are asymptomatic. However, if somebody had a fracture that seems like it shouldn't have occurred, and we call that, like, say, um, non-traumatic or falling from standing height, that would be considered a non-traumatic fracture, then that should suggest that perhaps that person should be screened. If someone's had height loss, one and a half to two inches over the years, then also that might suggest a compression fracture. So that basically, this is a function of aging, am I correct? You don't get osteoporosis as a teenager. No, that's right, unless the person had risk factors or other problems when they were younger, because usually we, the um, peak bone mass is achieved when a person's younger, around age 20 or so, and then we, um, when someone gets older, they are more at risk for bone loss, particularly after menopause and growing older. So the bone basically, as you said, is laid down, and by age 20, you're at the peak in terms of the amount of bone or the strength of the bone, and then it slowly over time new bone or less new bone is laid down? Is that how it works? That's true. I mean, it is still important to do all the things that should be done for bone health because to maintain bone health and also it's not that the bone won't grow anymore, but you really kind of reach that peak bone mass in the younger years. But um, again, as we get older, we want to do everything we can to maintain bone health so that there isn't a drop when we get older. It doesn't mean it has to happen. I mean, some people are more prone to it than others, but we want to prevent bone loss after menopause and with age. I want to talk about some of those contributing factors. So when we talk about risk factors, like who is most likely, because we just started to say age may play a role. Besides age, what are some of the other things? I mean, are women more likely to have it than men, for example? Are there uh, racial uh, issues there in terms of 
who might get it? Yes, these are important points. So women particularly are more at risk, especially after menopause, because once there's lack of estrogen around, the bones break down more. However, men are also at risk, and I think sometimes women are screened more often than men, so we don't want to forget about them because they also can have fractures. And particularly with age, especially like around age 80, the risk for men and women is about the same because age really is an important risk factor. Other things, um, different medications such as steroids can cause bone loss, long-term use of proton pump inhibitors, um, Which if, are the things like for, for uh, gastric reflux, that right, kind of protonics, thing. Nexium, yeah. those type of things, which are very popular, but it's, they're not recommended to be given long-term any longer. Um, other risk factors could be smoking, um, sedentary lifestyle, Caucasians and Asian background are more at risk, um, thinner body habitus. So you're saying like somebody who's thinner, basically they they have a smaller frame to begin with generally? Right, they're more at risk. How about family history? What role does that play? Oh yes, that does play a big role. And that's one thing we always ask our patients if they have any um, parents that had um, fractures or osteoporosis because that does increase one's risk. Are there other endocrinologists? endocrinological issues like thyroid issues or anything else that also can contribute to it? Oh yes, and we screen for those also. So um, if someone has hyperthyroidism, meaning too much thyroid hormone, either being produced by the body or taking too much thyroid hormone in a pill form. Um, also something called Cushing's disease where the body makes too much steroids. There's another disorder called hyperparathyroidism, the parathyroid glands in the neck um, secrete parathyroid hormone and too much of that can take from the bone as well. So basically the endocrine system does play a very important role here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the and the um, hormone levels in terms of your your estrogen also plays a very important role. Does it does it actually when you say postmenopause you tend to not build as much bone? Is it because estrogen is important in the process of bone building? Yeah, so estrogen helps to make there are the cells in the body and the bone called osteoclasts that break down bone. So after menopause, the lack of the estrogen um, kind of ramps up this production of osteoclasts and they're breaking down the bone more. So an another thing, thinking about risk factors, we always ask for women that are before menopausal age to see if they're having regular periods because a lack of periods for a prolonged you know, time can cause bone loss as well. So a lot of factors. What about any kind of dietary factors. In other words, is the amount of calcium that you eat at any point play a role? I mean, is low calcium a factor, for example, in your diet? Yes, that is important. So we always ask people about how much calcium they're taking in. And, you know, there's been mention in the medical literature and the media about not taking too much calcium supplements. And, and that is recognized that people can take too much. And thankfully, it's easier to get calcium from the diet than other things like, say, vitamin D, where many times people need supplements. So a good rough um, estimate is to ask people to take in about 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day from all sources, diet and supplement, and not to exceed 2,000, because then they run the risk for um, too high of calcium, perhaps kidney stones, things of that nature. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about treatment or that whole notion, but let me just interject here. Vitamin D has also been found to very, be very important as well. Yes. And Especially in our climate. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because when in the medical studies, it shows that even people that live in warm weather climates, such as Florida, are also at risk for vitamin D deficiency because people are indoors a lot. They cover up. You know, we have to keep our skin safe as well. But it, it's tough to get enough vitamin D from food alone, so many people do need some form of supplement. And it does play a role also in bone Oh yes, health. it's very important for the building of bone. And sometimes when we see patients referred for um, osteoporosis that perhaps their medication's not working well, sometimes it's just something as simple as their vitamin D level's very low and the, the medications can't work correctly. That's very interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with endocrinologist Dr. Jennifer Kelly. We're talking about osteoporosis. So another factor that has been linked to this problem with bone um, 
loss or is this whole idea of a sedentary lifestyle, does mm -hmm. that play a role as far as you can see as well? Yes, definitely. Because we know that when patients, you know, just people in general are sitting around that the, the bones and muscles become weak. You know, we need that regular weight-bearing activity, even in the form of walking to keep the bone strong. And it's also been recognized more so in the medical literature that um, weak muscles, what they call sarcopenia or lack of muscle strength, um, you know, that leads to bone loss also because it's not pulling on the bone to keep it strong. How about drinking? Or tobacco. What yeah. roles do they play? So tobacco is not good for many reasons, but also it you know, can cause bone loss and increase risk. So smoking risk. really yes, can. Smoking does, and then also alcohol use. Um, you know, small amounts of alcohol are okay. You know, um, the general recommendation is you know one alcoholic unit for women, two for men. But we know excessive alcohol use is bad for the bone. So you mentioned before the the um, bone densitometry is a way of testing or a way of diagnosing. Is that the primary way to diagnose these days? Yes, that is currently the gold standard test that we have. And once you've determined that someone does have osteoporosis, how do you begin the process of figuring out treatment? I mean, is first one thing you do is you make lifestyle changes? I mean, what's your order of approach? So, well, it would depend upon how low a person's numbers are. So again, the cutoff for osteoporosis is minus 2.5. So if they're close to the osteopenic range and maybe don't have a lot of risk factors, perhaps like not on medications that cause bone loss or family history, we may try lifestyle changes for a period of time. Um, if, if that, But unfortunately, those things aren't enough to prevent fractures, and that's the main thing we want to prevent. So, um, you know, I will look at their calcium vitamin D intake, other, you know, changes that they could make, but then many times consider a medication. So getting to, so basically, let me just review. So the lifestyle changes we're talking about is increased exercise, perhaps increased calcium and vitamin D intake, better diet overall, That's getting right. rid of smoking, getting rid of drinking and excess and all of that. Yes. But then you really do have to turn to drugs. So what are the drugs that you're finding these days are most effective? So the main group of medications that we use are called bisphosphonates and um, the one that's been out the longest, Alendronate or Fosamax. It works very well. You know, I think it's kind of gotten a bad rap in the media at times because, you know, there are rare side effects that can occur, but these things are extremely rare and the medication's been out, you know, almost 20 years and has very good safety data. The main thing with bisphosphonates and these medications work to stop the cells that break down bone. So by doing that, that increases bone density and cuts down fracture risk. With the medications such as Alendronate, which is once a week, there's Residronate or Actinel, which is once a week or once a month, there's Ibandronate or Boniva, which is once a month, they all have to be taken a certain way because they could irritate the esophagus or the stomach. So they're taken first thing in the morning on an empty stomach with a full glass of water, and then the person's instructed not to lie down for the next half hour to hour and not take any other food, pills, or medicine except for water to make sure it clears the esophagus. So there, there are those concerns about it, but what when you said it's gotten a bad rap in the press, I mean, Remind us about some of those things, funny fractures, yeah, so there, bone, uh, jawbone problems. Yeah, so, you know, there are these very rare things that can occur. One thing is called atypical femur fractures, where people have these um, fractures occur in the middle of the femur that kind of come out of nowhere seemingly. That's the long bone in the leg. Right, that's correct. And But the, um, the problem is when things are rare, it's tough to get good data. But, you know, the bone societies have been collecting data on this now for quite some time. And there is data that suggests people that are on these medications long term, you know, may be at increased risk. But in every one of their studies, there's always patients that have had these type of atypical fractures that have never been on any medication. So we can't say it's a cut and dry association. Some people may have anatomical features that put them more at risk. It may be another variant of an osteoporotic fracture. We just don't know. But the thing is, they're very rare, and about one in 100,000. And then when we look at fractures over age 50 are one in two. I mean, it's almost hardly so even a comparison. So the cost-benefit, obviously, for these bisphosphonates is much stronger in the positive direction. Absolutely. And and they are effective? You've yeah, been they work very they well, yes. 
And um, and the goal is nowadays, we try not to give these medications indefinitely. That was my question. How long? So um, it depends on the person and the medication. Um, so many times we'll give them for at least several years, maybe three to five years. But however, if somebody is very high risk for fracture, and perhaps if they've already had previous fractures, it is better off that they may stay on them rather than come off of them because um, the risk outweighs the benefits. But we always reassess over time to see if the bone density has improved, if their fracture risk seems down, then perhaps we can consider what's called a drug holiday at that time. And then would you then go back on, I mean, in that in that circumstance? So then what we would do is monitor the bone density over time and see what happens. And if a decline is seen down the road, we may restart a medication like a bisphosphonate or consider one from a different class. With people living so long these days, and not everyone, but obviously some some people are living longer into their 90s and you even hear many more people are centenarians. Mm -hmm. it, do these types of drugs, do we know enough to know that these types of drugs can actually um, help us long term and really prevent the kind of you know devastating fractures that take place yeah, in you know, older age? That is age? a good question and many times in the studies they do include pay people up to age 85, 90 because we know that the older someone is the higher risk for breaking something and that's something too when we think about our patients that are older you know many times we may try to lessen medications that we use for say cholesterol, blood pressure because we don't want to cause problems you know. You mean older as they age, age you right, don't want exactly. to, you minimize yeah. those drugs. Right but however osteoporosis is one that we really can't forget about and need to stay diligent with because the older someone becomes the more chance to break something and we don't want that to happen. Are there other drugs besides the bisphosphonates that are used? I mean, I think there recently there's been a new class that's come out. Yes. So there's, um, well, one other thing I want to mention about the bisphosphonates, there is an IV form that's given, zoledronic acid or reclast, and that's given um, once a year through the vein running over 15 minutes, and there, it can also be given every two years for osteopenia. So by giving it through the vein, we bypass the GI tract and it's absorbed well and people don't have to worry about fasting. There's another group of medication um, it's called Prolia denosumab. That's an injection under the skin every six months. That works very well. There's a daily injection called Forteo that's given for two years that helps build bone. And then there's um, a medication called Avista, which is used for females after menopause that works on kind of the good estrogen receptors, not the bad ones, and can help prevent breast cancer as well. So, but basically prognosis with all of this, if you have osteoporosis and you are on this kind of medications, what's the prognosis for people? So the prognosis is good. I mean, the most important thing with these medications is taking them correctly you know, talking with your provider about any, you know, concern for side effects and maintaining a healthy lifestyle, regular weight-bearing activity, even walking, you know, regular calcium and vitamin D, avoid other poor choices like tobacco, excess alcohol. But most people do very well. And they can avoid fractures. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Jennifer Kelly, Associate Professor of Medicine with the Division of Endocrinology at Upstate Medical University and the Clinical Director of the Bone Density Unit at Upstate's Joslin Diabetes Center. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.